Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast, where Dr. Joel Schwartz and I, Travis, discuss the intersection of faith and philosophy. We are part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Please visit our site at tacticalfaith.com, check out our blog, our other podcasts, and if you live in Alabama or nearby, we would love to see you at one of our events. If you'd like to help support our ministry, please pray for us, share us with your friends, and consider supporting us financially by going to the Donate tab on our page. I'm Travis. I'm Joel. And let's see what we can get to today. If you remember in our previous podcast, we talked about Quine, and we ended uh, ended the podcast, or ended our discussion of Quine, talking about how Quine sees uh, our beliefs as kind of a web. And if we want to hold to certain beliefs, we can change the other beliefs around it to make that belief work. Um, and But we, when you change one belief, you kind of affect the beliefs around it. Um, and so Quine is offering this as kind of a philosophical idea. And there's a philosopher named Thomas Kuhn, uh, he did philosophy of science, who followed Quine and Kuhn kind of gives a historical understanding of what Quine presents with this web of beliefs and, and the, the way we, we hold our beliefs. And um, the, Kuhn's most clear statement of that is in the book, The S- Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which is considered to be one of the most, one of the 100 most important books of the 20th century because of, um, because of how Kuhn's ideas were used uh, following the, the publication of the book. Uh, now, Travis has been um, digging around and, and, and th- working on the best way to present this information. And so I'm going to turn it over to him to let him, uh, him get some things on the table for us. Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions is, uh, again, just like Joel said, is very important. It's, it's one of the most important books of the last century. Um, and cited by many people in a lot of different areas, and perhaps uh, uh, with such widespread uh, recognition, it also had widespread misunderstanding. Uh, a lot of a lot of uh, probably bad interpretations. And our goal here today is to offer you, as best we can, a not bad interpretation. So uh, that's what we're aiming for. So uh, the structure of scientific revolutions, in some ways, is 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 fairly simple in terms of a lot of its content, but the, the main point that, that Kuhn is making, uh, some, of his, some of his main points or big points are actually uh, pretty dramatic. So uh, obviously, as the title says, he's trying to explain how scientific revolutions have taken place in the past. And he did this by, by studying the history surrounding uh, major shifts in scientific, uh, in scientific theory. Uh, and of course, we can think of the main, probably the biggest ones in physics, the move from an Aristotelian uh, paradigm to a Newtonian paradigm, um, and then from a Newtonian paradigm to a relativistic paradigm, an Einsteinian paradigm. And then, of course, we can also throw in quantum uh, quantum mechanics in there, which makes a mess of everything. Um, what Kuhn is trying to get at is something like this. The way we've been taught science is the way we might view the ideal scientist or a normal scientist is someone who uh, is objective. You could say almost disinterested, or without they have no value except a concern. They have they hold no values in their act of pursuing science. They hold no values except those, except 
the attempt to gain the truth. And so they enter a particular scenario, they maybe develop a hypothesis, um, and then they do a test to try to try to come to some sort of conclusion about whether the hypothesis is true, and so on and so forth. As scientists has built over the years, all of these various experiments and studies and research have accumulated to get us to where we are. So there is the Aristotelian view, but that was just based on not having as much information as Newton had. The Newton had more information. And so we understood that Newton was right. Um, and then as we gained more information, we realized that actually Einstein is right and so on and so forth. That's what we might call the cumulative view. And it's generally what we're taught in our understanding of science. What Kuhn is saying is that's not how things work. That's not how it's actually worked historically and philosophically, they don't, they don't line up that way. Um, these shifts from Aristotle to Newton to Einstein, and of course, by the way, as a, this is kind of a really important side note. Kuhn isn't just talking about major shifts in scientific views. This happens in communities of scientists uh, in narrow areas all the time. Revolutions are happening all the time. Um, they usually don't have that much of an effect on the rest of the scientific world, and so we don't really notice them. A, a new, a, the shift to Newton, shift to Einstein, so on and so forth, those were major shifts that had dramatic impact across the sciences um, for the most part. Um, but, uh, but these are happening in, in small ways all over the place. In any case, his claim is that when these shifts take place, a new paradigm, this is an important word here, a new paradigm is embraced and an old paradigm is rejected. And these paradigms, which give order to the way that you do science, the kinds of questions you care about, the kind of puzzles that that you'll seek to solve, um, this these paradigms are incommensurable. They can't, if one is true, the other one is false. And so it's not a strictly cumulative where we've just added one another couple of facts and then adding new facts, we realize, oh, our theory was off. This is, we, we had a series of facts. We had a bunch of things that we were doing where we were solving puzzles within this paradigm, answering questions that we couldn't answer before. And we kept running into problems, uh, anomalies, things that we couldn't, he calls them anomalies, but there's things that we could not answer within that paradigm. And as these begin to build up, as too many anomalies build up, um, it just becomes too uncomfortable for someone, like a Copernicus. And he says... This, this old uh, geocentric view is so complex, so messy. I mean, the, the, pre, the people who held to the geocentric view were, were, were dealing with the anomalies of how things, uh, how things were rotating around the earth and so on and so forth. They dealt with the anomalies with a lot of interesting developments here and there and so on and so forth. But Copernicus said there's so many ad hoc shit, there's so many ad hoc uh, developments that uh, to deal with the anomalies that the the theory had become a mess or the paradigm had become a mess and he simply could not accept it so he he uh, created a heliocentric uh, view um, were there still anomalies yes there's still things that Copernicus couldn't deal with in fact there were a whole host of anomalies but there were a, like a different set of questions that he was. Uh, that he was concerned about a different set of problems that he thought were less of a problem than these problems that came from a geocentric view. Let me let me stop you right real quick. And if we if we think back to Quine, what 
what Copernicus did was he he said, I'm going to change this belief that that the Earth is the center of everything. And in changing that belief, the ripple effects were huge. They right. that he changed all kinds of other things and there were you know, it was it was almost like building a new web, but you know, it, one one way that might be helpful for for people to think of it is if you're dealing with a set of questions on a plane, it's not that Copernicus shifted the plane a little bit and they're still you know still graphing on the same plane. It's a whole new plane that he started graphing on when yeah. he when he does this. So we we. We can't think of it in turn, you know. We can't think of what Copernicus is doing in terms of the old way. It is a new way of seeing the questions. Yeah, and and with the Copernican revolution, it's 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 a lot more evident to us with the Copernican revolution than it is with like something like the Newtonian or some of the smaller revolutions, because with Copernicus, it's clear that the center has shifted. And the kinds of questions now that come up are issues about elliptical orbits and so on and so forth, because things aren't going quite in circles. Um, whereas the questions that would come up if you if you held to a geocentric view were dramatically different. Right. Um, so so it, it is a whole host of questions. And Copernicus, again, Copernicus had many anomalies. The Copernican theory had many anomalies that had to, that had to be solved. It's just that he was more comfortable with these anomalies and believed that they could eventually be solved within his paradigm, where he was, he was uncomfortable with the geocentric anomalies. So, so what about those who held to the geocentric view? What, what happened to those people? If, if they were comfortable with the, the anomalies in the geocentric view – why, why would they be interested in, in following Copernicus? Yeah, this, this is actually, this might be perhaps one of the most uncomfortable things, claims that Kuhn makes. Um, and that is that what causes scientific revolutions, what happens, what causes the scientific world to shift from one paradigm to another is basically the old people dying. So uh, now this isn't true throughout, but basically he said scientific revolution. So a, par a paradigm is embraced is eventually it, it wins the day. People embrace it. They work within it. That paradigm uh, refers to the standards that the scientific community has, what kinds of questions we should ask, what kinds of questions we shouldn't ask the, the, the manner of puzzle solving. So you, when you go through and you study science, they give you a bunch of different puzzles to solve. They show you how to solve it and they say, go forth and do likewise. Um, and so somebody who's been doing this kind of science for 30, 40, 50 years, they, they've become, they've become quite comfortable with those anomalies, believe that there's some sort of solution that new technology might offer in the future, or perhaps there is, uh, there's some sort of ad hoc, you know, qualification for this particular situation and so forth that, that solves it. But a younger, often, very often, and Kuhn mentions this, there's a younger generation that rises up and sees the anomalies and says, no, these are real problems. We need to have, we need to have a paradigm shift. Now they're obviously not thinking that way, but they're looking at that. They're locking the problems. And as they're looking at these anomalies, they start fiddling with them in different ways, in ways that don't quite fit within the paradigm. Uh, and this is the situation that that Kuhn calls a crisis, a crisis in science. 
in the, what he calls the, no the normal science is the paradigm that's accepted. And most scientists are doing work within, they're doing what he calls normal science. That is the paradigm has been embraced. Everyone agrees on the paradigm. They're working out the puzzles within the paradigm. When this younger generation comes, it's usually a younger generation. They see the, they see the anomalies and they don't accept them partly because they haven't been habituated into the paradigm for 30 years. They're fairly new in it. So they kind of have fresh eyes for the paradigm. You might say they see, they see the anomalies and they don't accept them as they don't accept that the paradigm is sufficient for it. So they start fiddling around. And in this situation, these scientists who are approaching it in this way are the most like the description of a scientist we get when we're talked, when people talk about scientists. They're, they're wrestling with the paradigm. And so they're almost, instead of seeing the world through the paradigm, which we probably need to mention something about that, they're sort of seeing the world through the paradigm, but also trying to see outside of it. They're, they're letting the anomalies maybe grasp them and pull, pull them into a different perspective. Um, but we should talk about paradigms as, a, as an element of perception because that's, that's yeah. one of the key elements here. So one of the issues with Kuhn is he keeps using the word paradigm. What is a paradigm besides 20 cents? Um, a, a paradigm is more than a theory. Um, it's something bigger than that. It's almost, and it's something more practical. It's sort of like the way we are trained in, in puzzle solving, the kinds of methods you follow, the rules that you care about, and it's shown largely by seeing, so if you study science, you see how previous scientists have solved problems. You're given problems, you're told to solve them in this way, um, using these sorts of rules, holding to these kinds of laws, so on and so forth. And the paradigm eventually teaches you to see the world in a particular sort of way. It sets up the, the kinds of puzzles that are solvable, the kinds of questions you care about. And so that's all the element of the paradigm. For a paradigm shift to take place, someone actually has to learn to see the world in a different way because the paradigm is that through which you perceive the world. In fact, Kuhn even makes a claim, perhaps there is no perception without a paradigm in, in, in terms of science. Applying right. this to other fields is another question, but at this point, there is no perception without a paradigm. And so what would it mean to do, the, the way that we normally see a scientist is it's someone who looks at the world purely objectively, has no lens, has no paradigm, simply wants the truth. Kuhn saying there is no such thing. The closest we get to that are those who are doing crisis, who are doing, who are doing research in a crisis mode, where they start doing, they perhaps do research in ways that would be unacceptable under the old paradigm, because they've run into an anomaly and their old paradigm isn't working, and they can't. So they start trying new things. They start looking for things that they didn't previously look for, and in those moments of crisis, which are, they happen a lot. But the research done under there is there's far less research done in crisis moments than there than there is research done during normal science. Most scientists are just right. doing puzzle solving within normal science. And 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 it, it is worth saying that there are some scientists that try to push it into crisis, try to push normal science into crisis mode, and the anomaly that that scientist is pushing ends up being answered by, by normal science um, and such that it proves that the crisis was not actually a crisis. Right. Not, not all apparent crises lead to paradigm shifts. A lot of times it's just new technology had to be developed. 
or someone had to pay a little more attention to this particular question and they and they solve it. One way to think of a of a paradigm shift that that um, that some some of some of our listeners have experienced is um, is the shift from being a um, married couple without kids to a married couple with kids. You know, if if you if there was a married couple that didn't have kids but they were all about buying toys and buying diapers and all the we would be like what what are you, you guys are not living in your 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 world. It would be odd to us. But when you have kids it changes everything. It changes your sleep, it changes what's important, it changes uh you know what you know what you what you will have on, on your TV when sometimes, you know, what music you might listen to, you know, you, you read a lot more board books. I, I'm, you know, I'm a, my third child was recently born. So I'm reliving, you know, remembering these things afresh, right. but it, there's a shift that happens in that your values change. The questions you're asking change. Um, you know, you could say that happens from between when you, you're single to when you get married or, or each time you have a, 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 a new child in, in some ways. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, that that picture gives gives our audience a little more, um, you know, or if, especially if they're not familiar with science, a little more something they can grasp onto to understand a little bit better what the par- these paradigm shifts are about how it, they're completely transformational. They're not, you're not living the same way. You're not thinking the same way. You're not seeing the world the same way because what you value has changed the, the way you answer your question or the questions you ask and, and how you answer those. Yeah. Change. I mean, one of the elements uh, with that is when you start having kids, you start seeing, seeing any home you're in, in terms of how childproof it is, right? Like yes. before you might've looked around and you just noticed some decorate decorations and you, you run in with your rambunctious six-year-old boy and you're like, now you see, you know, lawsuits and financial difficulty from all the stuff being broken, right? That's how you perceive it. Like you perceive it at, you know, you might look at, at if you have a really young kid, you might look at outlets I mean, before you just look at outlets as great, that's somewhere to plug something in. Now you're looking at outlets as that's my kid's going to stick a, a fork in there and get killed. You know, there's just, there's different sorts of things, you know, that, that you're always, you, you suddenly notice things that you never noticed before. And you might start ignoring things that you previously cared about, um, right. like sleep. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's actually a really good, really good way to, to approach it from a very practical standpoint. This, this happens a lot whenever you become specialized in some particular thing, let's say you, you decide, Hey, we're going to paint our house. Suddenly you start noticing paint issues. Um, I remember when I was in college, when I started hanging gutter to work my way, partly way through college. Now I started noticing gutters on people's houses and talking, you know, talking trash about the poor job that the people did. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, you just, you, you see, you see different things. You, you emphasize different things. Um, cause there's a lot to see and we have to filter it. Right. If we didn't filter everything. If we didn't filter all the content that was coming in, we'd be overwhelmed and dead after a few years, probably, uh, maybe a few minutes. Uh, so, so that's kind of that's kind of what paradigms do. They're sort of like a filter for the questions um, by saying that the world is a particular sort of way, and it is mm-hmm. it is enforced by community standards or by, by the standards that, that the community sets out. So, uh, if you're going to publish an article in a journal, you need to be 
you need to be either you need to make it very, very clear that a particular crisis is upon us and we need a different sort of solution um, or you need to be solving a puzzle that normal science has set out. Right. And you're showing how you're how you're solving that puzzle. If you just start talking, you know, about the vibration of crystals and how that heals cancer, you might get published in, you know, one of those magazines you see when you're checking out at the store, but you're probably not going to get published in scientific American or anything like that. Um, unless you can actually prove that there's something meaningful and important there that, that can actually be proven because there are certain standards. Before we, we move on, I, let, let's talk a little bit more about how these shifts happen. So one question that, that Kuhn addresses is what happens if you have, two way if you have these anomalies they become overwhelming and you have two different ways of answering these anomalies both both ways answer the anomalies well but they're they're not they're they're two different approaches two different potential paradigms mm-hmm. i guess you could say w- who wins and why that's a really good question and i think there's i think there are a lot of a lot of factors that go into that Um, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure how we, like if they, a lot of it has to do with, maybe not a lot of it. The key element really is which one answers them better. But the question is, what does, what does it mean for them to answer them? What does it mean for them to be answered better? And, and, and this might be where it's helpful to think back to the, the web of beliefs that, that Quine's talking about. And in a sense, I, I guess if we're going to put it in the Quine terms, I think I think Kuhn might be willing to say that whichever one is le- is less disruptive, in that we have fewer beliefs that have to be changed because of the new paradigm, um, and 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 in that sense, it's the better it answers them better because it's an answer that's more palatable, I guess you could say, to the old paradigm to the values of the old paradigm. And so because it's less disruptive, it seems to um, when you're holding those values, that answer is going to be less. Of, I don't want to say offensive, but I'm not sure. A better, it might not be a bad term. I mean, it better. is, it is always a crisis to change, to change a belief, even, even a right. mundane, unimportant belief. Like you believed you parked in row F but you actually parked in row G and you're having an argument with someone. You suddenly discover you parked in row G and now you're upset, right? Because you were wrong. You don't like being wrong. Now imagine having to change your paradigm. The less you have to change, the better. Why? Because it's truer? No, because it's less uncomfortable for us. Right. Which might reflect truth. Who knows? Well, this is this is you know driving our our question that we kind of, the, the, some of the questions we left off you know left unanswered in our last podcast you know especially so what does this mean for a Christian? Do Christians have paradigms that um that are changed or or is the paradigm shift that we're we're concerned about the the shift of with the incarnation, death and resurrection of Christ, or was that even a paradigm shift? We just, it was just misunderstood. And so this is all one paradigm or, or 
you know, is the paradigm an individual thing or is it a corporate thing? Or uh, these are some big questions that we're going to try and talk through a little bit of them and and see see what conclusions we can come to. One of the interesting a- applications of this to the question of faith and science and so on so forth is, or maybe I should say this: a Christian may may take this kind of idea. We may we may take this idea and and say in kind of a triumphalist way, "Ha! Even science is based doesn't have any solid foundation, solid footing. These paradigms are different ways of kind of mapping onto the world or." Ways of there are different ways of telling us how to solve puzzles, but they don't have any claim to being absolute, objective, unquestioned truth. They too are crafted partly their webs that lay over the world and kind of explain the world to us, and those webs are decided by the values that we hold. Now, not necessarily values like don't murder and so on and so forth, even though some of that probably relates, but the kinds of questions we care about. That means, and someone may understand it this way, and in fact, a lot of people interpret a coon this way, that means it is all, uh, everything's relative, right? Mm-hmm. Coon is just presenting a relativistic worldview. There's science, you know, I could be an Aristotelian or I could be an Einsteinian or whatever. It doesn't really matter because all of them are just different ways of talking about the world, but none of them are particularly right, right? In fact, I might as well just say, why not, you know, animism? They're all just different ways of talking about the world. We don't have any evidence that one is right or one is wrong. So a Christian may at first say, ha, huh, see, science can't, can't trump faith because science depends on faith, right? A certain set of values and a, a certain amount of faith. At the same time, you don't want to go all the way and say, well, any way of talking about the world is fine. Right. And this is where Kuhn says, Kuhn's ideas of how scientific progress takes place, that he actually believes in scientific progress. There's not just change. It's not a flat shift from one paradigm to another. He believes there actually is some element of progress um, going on. The question is, how do we measure that progress? Is science better now than it once was? I think, I think we could say so. I mean, we've been to the moon we have air conditioners. Um, we have quantum computing. Um, I mean, I think we've been to the moon. I'm not sure. <laughs> it, when we talk about progress, there's uh, progress is a weird thing to talk about because I don't think anyone 60, 70 years ago would have looked at where they were and said, okay, this is what it would mean for us to have progress. Go, landing on the moon would be progress. Would, would be, you know, progress that we can expect from this or, you know, iPhones or something or progress. But looking back on it, we can see that we were, were much farther along in those ways than we, than we were, you know, 70 years ago. Um, and so in a sense, progress is defined by the values of the paradigm because our paradigm values those things. We say, look, we can do these things that the previous paradigm could not do. Um, we can do these things that, you know, no previous paradigm could have, could have been able to do. Um, and, and so in a sense, I'm not trying to push us right back to the relativism, but in, in a sense, we have to understand that 
that we embrace the paradigm because it does a better job of answering questions that are important to us. But that's what's important is kind of defined by the paradigm. So the the goal would be, can we make a paradigm that matches up with reality? Or what is truly valuable? That may seem like a different question, but I think that is the the exact question as what is reality is what is valuable. Yeah. So this is kind of what we're saying. If you take Quine, you take Kuhn, you kind of mush them together, in, maybe in a way that's not entirely appropriate, you get this sort of idea that values, and when we say values, we're not, we're not merely talking about ethics or morality. We're talking about what you decide to care about. And that can be uh, the questions that you think should be answered in, by science and so on and so forth. Those sets of, those kinds of values what kind of questions you consider important or unimportant determines what kind of anomalies become crises or not crises, right? These, these are, these are the, this is kind of is what it's all about. Um, those things establish the paradigms for us. In a sense, you might say value gives structure to the world. <laughs> if I were to uh, uh, talk a little bit ahead and, and hint toward Wittgenstein and perhaps Polanyi and so forth, uh, Esther Lightcap Meek and so on. But we are, the values actually do, they give us the questions that we want to answer. They tell us what kind of puzzles should be solved. And the, the, the values are often determined by the paradigm, but also are uh, that which determines the paradigm. What truly is valuable in the world? What are the things we really should be caring about? And does that impact the way we approach science? And I wonder if sometimes that the apparent conflict between faith and science is driven by a recognition that science doesn't seem to care about, may not care about the right things, but we argue with it on its own terms. And so I want to say something like, and I need to be careful here, I understand, but I'll just go, I'll just go with it. Um, well, let me give you an example. Uh, just this past, uh, this past weekend, I had a conversation with someone who, teaching pastor at a church, and he got up and gave a talk. And afterwards, he was criticized by someone because he apparently supported or advocated a heliocentric view of the world. And the person claimed that, and focusing on that 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 time when the sun s stood still in the uh -huh. sky, that clearly shows that the Bible supports a geocentric view of the universe, or at least this, if I can call it, a, is it right to call it a solar system if right. it's geocentric? Anyway, um, but uh, and he didn't even know what to do. He's like, I didn't think we had geocentrists around. And you might look at something like that and say, okay, the Copernican revolution, if it's understood to be not merely an issue of physical location, but also an issue of importance, look, the sun is big and the center, therefore the earth matters less than the sun, whatever that means, right? That's a weird statement right. to say. Um, but the earth matters less than the sun, therefore humans are not the center of God's world, not the center of God's universe. 
Well, yeah, if you claim science makes, if you say that science makes that claim, the Copernican revolution actually transforms values in that way. And then I can see why you'd be direct, you'd be really opposed to the Copernican revolution. Mm -hmm. And that in some ways, I think it has done that, right? There's a lot of people who, who, uh, it's not really a form of the problem of evil, but it's somewhat comparable where they basically say, look how big the universe is. Look how inhospitable it is. Therefore you don't matter. Right. You're like, well, that there's a premise missing in there somewhere, right? It's just right. an assumed premise that something about size matters or whatever, right. which let's not get into that. So, um, uh, size or location or relative location is the key to understanding value, which is of course, nonsense, but the sense that we have is that science seems to be rejecting certain kinds of values. And you see this, and if I can, if I can go down this route, uh, if you're familiar with philosophy at all, uh, the churchlands in particular with philosophy of mind, their goal seems to almost be to deny they really are concerned that we not allow consciousness to be anything that's not material and sort of in that objective realm. And it's almost like they want to deny the value of it by simplifying all phenomena down to what can be explained through material science. Um, now, if we're going to argue with them, we should, if, 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 our, if our problem with them is that they're denying a certain kind of value, then we should be talking about the values. And maybe that would lead to a paradigm shift, but we shouldn't. We shouldn't, being driven by this sense that there's something off on the values, that doesn't mean we necessarily need to argue within the context of the science that's there. So, sorry, this sounds really confusing, but let me let me explain myself. I mean, if we believe that the earth is really, really important, if, if what's driving us is the intuition that what takes place on the earth really matters to God, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to we have to reject heliocentrism. Right. Yeah. And even though the person claims to be appealing to what's going on in scripture, I'm not, first of all, I'm not sure it follows that scripture saying the sun stood still in the sky means that the earth, that the sun goes around the earth. We still say sunrise. And that doesn't mean that we believe the sun right. is coming up. We know that the earth is spinning. Um, I think what what makes this such a, a zealous thing is they, they believe, first of all, this isn't taking the Bible seriously, and it might be denying the value of humanity. Well, then let's talk about those issues, as opposed to talking about arguing with within. It's almost like we're talking about a different set of values, but we're trying to say the questions have to be different. So we're arguing within that web but saying the web has the wrong answers. And it, it feels like that, that is a, that is a, a, an approach to, to, uh, in relating to science that's destined to fail or be mocked. Yes. I feel like that was really, I don't know if anyone's following. Let, let me, let me try and, and, and maybe oversimplify it for a minute. Um, okay. So when, when, as people of faith, when we're talking about our faith paradigm and, and, and the questions that we find valuable, um, when we 
go to science and say, you're not answering these questions. And science kind of looks at us like, well, of course we're not answering those questions because those are dumb questions. It, science is looking at us at, if like, like if we went, you know, if science, assume for a minute, science is, base, is, is the sport of baseball. And we go in and say, so how do you guys plan on scoring a touchdown today? And they would look at us like, what are you talking about? That makes that's something I'm not actually. <laughs> that makes absolutely no sense. Um, the the questions are are just so foreign to them that, and and he, he, I, I think you know this connects to Wittgenstein. I think we're going to have to do a Wittgenstein episode here soon. But um, right when we're 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 playing two different, we're 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 seeing the world two different ways such that it's almost like we have two worlds that we're talking about. We're talking about the same thing, but we're talking about it in such foreign ways from each other that we can't understand what the other one is saying. Right. And what I don't want us to do, this is what I don't like people doing. And I think this is not, this is an example of not taking the Bible seriously is saying, well, science gives us the facts. The Bible gives us the moral values. I don't think that's right. Because first of all, fact and value are not divided in that way. That's part of Kuhn's point. That's part of Quine's point. But there's also some element of truth to that in a way. Like science is trying to map onto the world in a way that perhaps the Bible is not trying to map onto the world. Yes. What does that mean? Like the science has a different, the Bible has a different set of values and so speaks about things in a different way, which means when we try to make the Bible and science speak the same language or when we claim that they're speaking the same language, we're going to run into some serious difficulties. Right. So this is, the, we need to avoid those two. We need to avoid reading, reading the Bible as a modern day science book. Right. But we also have to avoid reading the Bible as some sort of self-help book that has no scientific value. Right. When I say scientific value, I want us to use the think of the word science in a very broad sense. Otherwise, we're just when you hear me, you're going to say I'm telling you to read it as a modern science book. And that's not what I'm saying. And so. But I do I want to make note of this because because Quine or Kuhn early on in the book makes an makes it. This is exactly what you're saying. He's when we're talking about if you go to a baseball team and say how many touchdowns you want to get to like you're not you're speaking the wrong language. Um, you're talking about the wrong world. He said, uh, one of the things that a scientific community acquires with a paradigm is a criterion for choosing problems that, while the paradigm is taken for granted, can be assumed to have solutions. To a great extent, these are the only problems that the community will admit as scientific or encourage its members to undertake. Other problems, including many that have previously been standard, are rejected as metaphysical or as the concern of another discipline or sometimes just is just too problematic to be worth the time. And he gives an example when he's talking about worldview shifts later on in the book about how Aristotle could explain how, explain how gravity worked. Right. I mean, he, he didn't have the term for gravity. He just said, things are drawn to their natural end. Uh, material objects are drawn, drawn down because that is their natural end. That is their natural goal. When we got to the Newton Newton's view Gravity wasn't explained. It was just a stated thing. And for you to try to explain gravity 
was ultimately to fall back into this metaphysical Aristotelian view that is false. And then with relativity theory, we have another explanation. We again have an explanation for gravity, for how it works or what it is. And so you see which questions are even allowed for you to ask the question of in within the Newtonian realm, what causes gravity is almost improper. Right. It's not, it's just, it's just, there just is, there's ma- units, things with mass attract one another, mm-hmm. but that be what it is. Um, and so what questions are admitted? What questions are allowed to be pursued? What questions are considered basic? These, these are all a part of, um, part of a paradigm and they're all related in some ways to values. What kind of questions do we think science should answer? What kind of questions do we think are important as Christians? What values do we hold that are different than scientific values? I, I mean, because you can, you could even, you know, as I pointed to earlier, you, you can even change this to from uh, the idea that this is unique to science to say, hey, no, this is we we can actually tell a story of we could call it the structure of of religious revolutions um of or of faith revolutions or or and and talk about the way that we understand god has changed um over time well yeah this it was interesting just this past sunday school we were talking about kind of how paul sort of sums up the gospel in first timothy and how there's no there are no first person pronouns in his summary. It's all about what is. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've heard some people say that the summary of, of the gospel is Jesus is Lord. But that's not the gospel I learned as a kid. <laughs> the gospel I learned as a kid is, and listen to all the personal pronouns, uh, God created law. I broke that law. I am now separated from God and I need salvation. I need someone to forgive my sins. Um, and suddenly it's, I, I in, in some ways, the, the center has shifted with the development of, of, of a more individualistic worldview. Um, the focus is very much on the individual. I mean, look, you look at scripture when, when the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says to him, be baptized. You and your, and your, you and your household will be saved. You're like you and your household. No, your kids need to grow up and make a decision themselves. Was Paul wrong? Was Paul sloppy in his language? Are we more accurate? Are we conf- Is our society just different? Do we hold different values so we approach these things in a slightly different way? That doesn't mean the gospel's changed. Right. But it does mean we read the Bible differently than we once did. Right. Um, and part of the goal is to allow the, the values of the Bible to drive our questions and our paradigms, right? Right. Um, in as much as we're able to. But we're far from scientific revolutions in some ways, and this is getting pretty long. So I think we're going to we're going to kind of close it up here. Final few words. When you think about Quine and Kuhn, think about what you value. Think about what you hold to, what beliefs you're willing to hold to through thick and thin, regardless what evidence might be presented or how much what kind of evidence would be required for you to be willing to change a belief. Um and and I mean, because I think we we all have different things that we we would require 
in, incredible amounts of evidence to uh, for us to um, think otherwise. You know, if I saw saw my wife do something that I believe is tr- strongly contrary to her character, you would t- it would take a lot of evidence for me to con- me to be convinced that my wife is different than I think her to be. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and I, that and Quine and Kuhn give us the tools to understand why that is the case. Um, and this isn't unique to just that. When we talk about, you know, what parts of faith are the ones that we hold on to through thick and thin, that what kind of evidence would re- be required for us to change a belief um, with our faith? Um, these are, are questions worth asking. Um, what beliefs are we willing to change in order to hold to our beliefs? Um, those are are questions that I, I, I think we often just want to act like, oh, I'm going to hold my beliefs, whatever. And um, life tends to not work that way. Um, right. So my, my, one of, one of the things I hope that we're taking away from Kuhn and Quine is um, what would drive us to, to have a paradigm shift of, of faith? What would that look like? And, and how can that, how can we strive to, make it progress that is that we know we know god you know the triune god more intimately than we did previously yeah and this is some of the stuff we've been writing on in the blog uh i've recently begun well some time ago i began wrestling with the idea of paul saying i've resolved to know nothing but christ and him crucified and i began looking through that looking through the luke acts which i which i've taught before looking at the the different elements of those begin to realize that Christ is the manifestation of the father. You know, that's Christianity 101. Christ is the son of God. And if you want to know, if you want to know the father, know Christ, well, what did Christ, how did Christ present himself as a servant? That, yeah, we all know that. But if you really think about that, it begins to transform your view of what power is, how it looks, the character of God himself and it can even begin to trickle down into your understanding of justification and salvation and so on and so forth. And I'm not saying we need to get rid of salvation by faith and justification. Let's, I'm not getting crazy here. But what I'm saying is the way that we understand how that all functions is significantly different and significantly richer in a way that our kind of boiled down for spiritual laws doesn't quite get us to. Um, so, yes, this is uh, uh, Quine, Kuhn. We're talking a little bit about how... Uh, the, the, the idea that when people say scientists say that is not necessarily the end all be all source of all truth. Scientists are not necessarily these purely objective, disinterested knowers. Um, there is no such thing. Um, rather, science itself is formed in many ways by the values that, that present the questions and so on and so forth. This is part of the point of Quine and Kuhn. Um, does that mean science is purely a faith-based exercise? But it depends on what you mean by those terms, but probably not. Right. Science does fly us in planes and condition our air and get us to the moon and give us these silly cell phones that are ruining our lives. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, it, but that does not mean because science says here's, these are the questions and these are the answers. That doesn't mean that those are necessarily all correct. Um, 
there are other elements and other values that science doesn't seem to say much about um, or is saying, uh, talking about very poorly. And it, maybe it's in those areas where we Christians need to press on science. Um, but we have, that, that's, that's, a, that's a big issue. And I don't want to say too much, otherwise we're going to start making people mad. Somebody's going to be mad about it. So, uh, so, but these are just things to think about. We're not telling you these are the answers. Our goal is to wonder toward and about wisdom as much as we can. Uh, hopefully we ourselves can climb out of some foolishness at some point with the help of the Lord. So, with that being said, I'm Travis. I'm Joel. And thank you much. Yes, thank you. <laughs>